Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Luperton. This week on the show, my conversation with a British-born folk rock rebel and underground guitar icon who has influenced generations of songwriters in his five decades cutting cult classic albums, Richard Thompson. With his signature grimace that seems to dare you to look at his album covers, his salty slam poet vocal delivery, his slashing finger-picked guitar style, and wearing a black beret that makes Richard look more like a hardened revolutionary than a kindly grandpa who just turned 70 and has been playing concert halls and festivals across the world for five decades straight, I admit I was a bit apprehensive at how our little chat would go. Sometimes before I interview an artist, I'm able to become friends with them over years of playing the same festivals and different venues together. You know, maybe we walk down the street and have some dumplings. Maybe we talk about their mother. But you know what? I was dropped into Richard Thompson sight unseen. And all I knew was when I mentioned his name, that weird twinkle that came in people's eyes. And when they heard that I was interviewing him, they were like, oh, really? You're actually going to talk to him? Well, yeah. And that's where I found him backstage at the Strawberry Music Fest in Northern California, and I almost didn't recognize him. He was innocently checking his email with a faded baseball cap on his head and a half-read novel on his lap. And he was so polite and kind to me that instead of asking the hard questions right away, I found myself asking silly things like, what was it like meeting the Queen when he was appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire like the Beatles were? And what was it like writing songs in his new home base of the mythical wasteland of New Jersey? Stupid amateur things. And I forgot to ask him about his father being a detective for Scotland Yard. And was it a lot of pressure to have the LA Times say that Richard might be the best songwriter after Bob Dylan and the best guitar shredder since Jimi Hendrix in one? And how did he feel about folks like Bonnie Raitt and Alison Krauss and Emmylou Harris and the Blind Boys of Alabama and the Neville Brothers and R.E.M. and countless others lovingly covering his songs over the years? And of course, I should have asked him about how some of his snarky classics like 1952 Vincent Black Lightning have become root standards. And that line, I just can't get out of my head. Red hair and black leather, my favorite color schemes. How did that come? And why, on the cover of that record, Rumor and Sigh, does it taunt the reader with the lines, I feel so good, I'm going to break somebody's heart tonight. And I feel so good, I'm going to take someone apart tonight. And of course, I could have asked him more about his late 60s classic group Fairport Convention and how they became the lilting British answer to the Laurel Canyon sound, bringing poetry to the pop charts. And how did he write all those songs with his ex-wife Linda Thompson on those records in the 70s that sound like the sexy, echoey backdrop to grainy Cassavetti's films? And I wonder, after all these years, how he feels about being the headliner on these little American festivals in these little American towns and still getting gasps from the young folks like me in the front row when he went off on an insane five-minute guitar solo with the fog of a California night billowing around his black parade head like the smoke from a lesser-known god creating something scary and unrepeatable. Sometimes the playbook goes out the window when you meet someone like Richard. 
and all I know is I'm glad I could sneak into his green room and find out how he had gotten here after a unique career that had him in and out of the spotlight, veering from folk rock outsider to major label hitmaker and back again. And you know what? He wasn't scary at all. He's been on a wild ride, and only he can tell it right. So here he is, Richard Thompson. What's my name? Welcome back to California. Thank you. Nice to be here. I mean, moving to New Jersey after being here, you know, in the Golden State for so long, it's, it's got to be a bit of a, a mind bender. How does it feel? Well, it feels fine. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I love California, but um, as a touring musician, um, you know, I'm away half the year. Yeah. Uh, the East Coast is so much more compact. Well, it's more compact. That, that's another factor, I suppose. But, but um, the, the, the fact I'm away half the year means I'm very used to all, all different parts of the states. You know, I'm, I'm used to Florida. I'm, I'm used yeah. to Missouri. You know, I'm used to Idaho. I, yeah. you know, so, you know, relocating is probably less of a big deal than it would be for other people. I mean, at this point in your career, do you feel like there's a certain reason why you want to play shows? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning and be like, I want to play tonight? Uh, is it just be able to tell the stories? Yeah, I mean, the same thing. It's always been really, you know. Um, you love playing music. Uh, you, lo- you love communicating music yeah. to people, music and lyrics, um, yeah. and that's the reason that you do it. For some reason, you can't stop doing it, even if you want to. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I'm not sure what drives you, but I, th- I think you're driven by a love of music, yeah. and you're driven by whatever demons are, are uh, whispering in your ear, you know, uh, yeah. on a regular basis. I mean, I love, I love what you said about your, you know, your record in 2017, 13 Rivers, how, like, these songs sort of ebb and flow in different speeds and different, you know, rhythms, and, and it's mm. sort of like songs as these bodies of water that go in and, in and out of, of your life. Yeah, it's a, it's a cheap know. metaphor, but it'll do. <laughs> What what is your what is your favorite song that you're singing right now? I'm not sure I have a favorite. It's it's like having a favorite child. You're not really yeah. allowed to do that. So um, I try to treat all my children uh, even handedly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I don't have a favorite. If, if I have a favorite, you know, um, it'll be different tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but there's probably different songs that you could sing at like a festival here. Yeah. Well, fa- yeah, a festival's theater. a different situation yeah. sometimes. Uh, festivals sometimes. You kind of look out at the audience and you think, okay, well, we better keep the tempo up. You know, yeah. we're losing them. Well, you you're know. playing the nine o'clock dance party set. Tonight. Okay, that's uh, that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> I have to rewrite the set immediately. Uh, we can lend you some of our horn players if oh, you really want. Excellent, fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, it's nice to be in that slot. I, I, I mean, I have, I have the band with me, so it's yeah. mostly up tempo. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll take a couple of uh, breaks uh, for those who really insist on. Um, Dancing the quick step or the waltz, yeah, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll get back to something a bit more um, lively. When did you start playing the guitar? I started playing the guitar when I was ten, and I still haven't got it right. <laughs> 
But you, is it like, do you feel like your guitar is like your best friend sometimes? <laughs> best friend and worst enemy at the same yeah. time, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a friend and it's a challenge at the same time. And, and uh, it's a cruel mistress. Um, I, I think guitar is easy to play uh, up to a certain level. Yeah. And then it gets really difficult. Yeah. Then it gets really difficult. Um, so... What would you call your style? Um, what do I call my style? I mean, are you self-taught mostly? Uh, I suppose mostly self-taught. Um, yeah. But, you know, I took classical lessons when I was a kid. Mm. And that was a great help, actually. Um, that, that was a really good, good thing to do. Um, you know, I, I play kind of hybrid style where I use a pick and fingers at the same time. Mm. Kind of cheating style. I mean, generally, I, I think I play kind of Celtic influence rock and roll, which mm. is an uh, um, interesting hybrid. Um, there are overlaps there, but it, it, it means I don't play the blues. I don't play, you know, a lot of American styles necessarily. I mean, you probably could play the blues if you really wanted to. Oh, I can if, if, if someone's paying me. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be paid to play the blues. Yeah, it's very important. <laughs> I was at this guitar shop the other day, and I was trying out a guitar, and I was, I was playing like a 12-bar blues, mm -hmm. and the guy comes up to me and goes, don't play that crap in here. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why was wrong with the blues? <laughs> if you run a guitar shop, it must be absolute hell, yeah. you know, what people actually play. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do, do they get you know stairway to heaven every day? In a, in a yeah. shop? Probably do. You know. Do you remember the first record <clears throat> that really like made you want to start creating your own stuff when you were young? Well, um, I had an older sister. She was five years my senior, and uh, so she was buying rock and roll records from the beginning. Yeah. So when I was five, I, there was Bill Haley, you know, and Elvis coming through the wall. Yeah. Uh, but the first thing that really grabbed me was Buddy Holly. I, I, mm. I think uh, my, my sister had had, had every, every Buddy Holly record. Right. And um, I, I just loved his playing and the kind of sound of Buddy, Buddy Holly's records. And I think um, I was asking for a guitar for, from about the age of five. Yeah. But, but uh, I didn't get, get one until I was 10. But, but that, that's the first stuff I wanted, really wanted to play was, was Buddy Holly. It is interesting that he doesn't seem to get the, like, maybe appreciation as the sort of springboard to so many rock and roll bands like... Elvis or the Beatles. Yeah, absolutely, you know? yeah. Because yeah. I was talking to Peter Rowan earlier today, and he said the same thing. Like, yeah. when he was starting to play rockabilly, you know, in high school, it mm -hmm. was like, Buddy Holly was the guy who looked up in Chuck Berry, you know? Yeah, I, know? Yeah, I, th I think Elvis was at some... Uh, I think Elvis kind of d decayed fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the Sun Sessions are just yeah. extraordinary, absolutely right. extraordinary. But, but even by like 58, 59, he was becoming a bit too slick yeah. for some people. And people preferred, you know, you know Johnny Burnett or something or, right. or, or you know, Gene Vincent, you know, yeah. a bit more grit to it. Well, your record, <laughs> 13 Rivers, was you did it analog in, at Boulevard, Boulevard uh, mm -hmm. you know, in L.A. Yes, we did. And, you know, it has a bit of that spooky... I don't know how do you describe it? It's like something that only happens on on tape a lot of times, where like I there's something so, yeah. hanging in the air, like ghosts, you know. You know, also also people playing together in, in a room. Yeah. Where you know the mics are spilling into each other. Right. That that, that kind of thing. So you get this kind of room sound, this, this right. sort of unity of sound, rather than okay, uh, you know, we we got the bass drum down, yeah. now we're going to do the snare. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> With uh, the digital world, you can, um, you can you can take lots of shortcuts, and you can create something that sounds really, really good. But yeah. um, but ultimately, I think um, you know for for warmth and, and, and for kind of attitude, um, I, I think analog is uh, still the king.
It just costs you more, that's all. Yeah. Did you do it on one-inch tape? Uh, we did it on, on, on two inches. On two like inches, a, yeah. yeah, 16-track. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's also a bit of, like, I mean, there's maybe less room for error, which means, like, you have to get it right in the first few takes, right? Ideally, yeah, ideally. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I, I, I see people do now is uh, people will do a performance in the studio. Yeah. Uh, and, and they'll say, well, how is that? I'll say, well, uh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But that's okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it in Pro Tools. Right. You know, so, so, so you, you begin with an imperfect performance. Right. And then you, you tighten it up and clean it up. Right. Uh, and, and so it sounds okay. But, but uh, it's better, if, if you have the musicians who can do it, it's better to, um, to, to get it right the first time. Yeah. I always think, you know. The, uh, the song Rattle Within, <clears throat> it just like, is such a sort of tribal ominous jam you know oh, where, where you know there's this pounding sort of drum and this ominous mm. growl that you have about I mean it kind of reminds me of someone looking sort of at almost like their impending doom and their death and defying it or something you know well I thought it was just a happy little tune myself but there <laughs> you go yeah it's, it's a little uh, ominous and threatening I, but that's a good thing I think musically speaking um where did that song come from? No, everything is the sound of music, you know. Yeah. Uh, where's that song come from? Uh, just this this idea that that uh, we're all kind of self-destructive uh, at at some level, and, and how how you control that. Yeah. Uh, how you stop that breaking out from inside you. Do you warm up before you get on stage? Yeah. Uh, you know, fifteen twenty minutes is probably enough. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I've I've heard a lot of different uh, artists that have stood the test of time of like how they save their voice, how they mm. keep their, their fingers and their, and their wrists, you know, cause a lot of people, they break down, you yeah, know? Yeah. You know? And it's like, I heard a, a good one the other day about, um, it's like apple cider vinegar and honey gargled down and spit, yep. you spit it out right before you get on stage. <clears throat> no, that, that's, that's, that's a, that's a very good one. Um, yeah. Uh, honey and lemon is good. Um, Tabasco and lemon. Yeah, some people. Tabasco. Um, Tabasco and lemon. That, that's the Neville oh, wow. Brothers. Um, uh, oh wow. Vocal um, uh, lubricant. <laughs> yeah, a square, a square of chocolate. But before you you go on stage, uh, stops mm. you tearing your throat. Oh really? Yeah, stops you uh, damaging it. But um, I think to survive long term, you kind of have to. Uh, I wouldn't say take it easy, but but yeah, you have to pace yourself. Yeah. You know, so so if if you're a, if you're going to scream like every night. Right. Um, you might burn out. You know, Robert Plant's gone down about an octave uh, from yeah. from the Zeppelin days, uh, for instance. Well, it, yeah, it is amazing. Certain guys, I mean, like, Paul McCartney sounds like Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, he really can, like, maintain those sort of high love songs, which kind of amazes Just about, me. I, I yeah. mean, the, the top end of his range, which yeah. was granted uh, yeah. very high, uh, is, is just getting a little yeah. little quavering now, but, but uh, guy's 75, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's done very well. Um, Would you and Paul ever team up? <laughs> I like him. I'd love to do something with him if he asked me. That'd be great. Great fun. Yeah. Come on, Paul. Yeah, come on, Paul. We're waiting. <laughs> no, he's great. I mean, one of the great songwriters, actually. And you were given the, the royal order uh, from the Queen, right? Yeah. Is that something that you find a bit ridiculous, or was it pretty cool? At the time you're actually doing it, there's nothing ridiculous about it. Yeah. It's actually kind of um, quite emotional and, and quite overwhelming you yeah. know, to, to be actually you know, at the palace and there yeah. you are and it's your turn, you, you go up and... You know, did you it feel awkward or did it feel like... 
didn't feel awkward. It, it awe felt, it, it felt kind of yeah. It, it felt absolutely awe-inspiring. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, one hundred and fifty years ago, uh, you know, the awards like that were given, you know, as kind of royal favors or political favors, right. um, and, and and they weren't given to you know to, to, to plumbers and bakers and, and blacksmiths. You know, uh, yeah. now um, a lot of the awards come from uh, public nomination. Right. So there's someone in your community who's an incredible person, you know, that, that does great work in some field. Right. Uh, they get nominated for, for, for an award, and, and that's more how it works these days. So, so it was great to be um, nominated. I mean, I got to think that growing up in, in England, you have a much different view of, like, the relevance of the monarchy, you know? Well, you it, do, yeah. Because it feels do. here like sort of a fairy tale thing but also like completely ridiculous that that's still such a thing you know well but but it actually i mean for britain it works really well but because you have, you have basically a figurehead monarchy it's, right. it's a powerless monarchy right. but uh, the queen theoretically has the power to do, to dissolve parliament she, yeah. she, she can actually do it if she wants to she'd never ever do it but but she's the queen and she's over there and that's the royal family and that's what they do and it's right. a huge tourist attraction that brings in billions of pounds a year in yeah. revenue but, but it means that, that we, we, don't, we don't take our politicians that seriously. We don't, we don't treat our politicians yeah. as kings and queens. Uh, whereas in America, I think there, there is a tendency to be over-respectful. Um, uh, over yeah. To uh, to politicians, mm. um, you know, like the, you, you know, if you're a president, then people say, "Oh, Mr. Mr. President, sir," yeah, yeah. you know, the, the people are very, very um, humble and, and genuflecting to, to, to the just to the office yeah. of of president. Um, whereas in Britain, where we absolutely lampoon our politicians and and, and treat them as the scum they frequently are. <laughs> <laughs> well, Theresa May is stepping down, right? She's stepping down. Um, well, she had an impossible job anyway, yeah. um, and God knows what's going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for a second referendum, and, and we just stay in the thing and, and try and try and fix it as it is. I mean, the, the EU is a mess, yeah, uh, and there were good reasons for getting out, but um, the actual process of getting out has revealed the fact that no one really thought about it. Yeah, you've been in the states for how long now? Um, yeah, um, thirty years odd. Thirty years. I mean, do you consider yourself, you know? de facto American at this point? I consider myself somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I love America. You know, I, I love living here. Um, I also love uh, Europe. Uh, um, you know, I love to go back. Um, you know, some years I'm actually almost 50-50 in the split. Where's your best fan base, do you think, right now? I mean, it probably is in the States, you know. You know, but you, you could say, I mean, California's a, a good fan base. Um uh, the, the northeast United States is a good fan base. Um, Chicago is a good fan base. I mean, you know, they're, they're good places. Parts of Europe, like, like uh, Belgium, Holland, mm. you know, Britain. Yes, absolutely. You know, Australia, mm-hmm. Japan. Yeah, anywhere that will have me, I'm very yeah. happy to play. The you know, it's interesting right now that there's uh, there's a, a movie coming out called Echo in the Canyon. I don't know if you heard about it. This yeah. you know, the Topanga Canyon and. Laurel Canyon, all these the folks who lived in LA and bringing that sort of folk rock mm-hmm. sort of experience to the world that is all these amazing songs that mm-hmm. we hear all the time. And I feel like, in a way, like Fairport Convention was in that sort of uh, world on the other side. We were, you know, absolutely. You know, yeah. and that sort of explosion of amazing music in the late 60s was. I think unparalleled in time, you know. 
Well, we thought it was normal at the time. But how, but, uh, like, how did that all happen so quickly? And it was like, what, probably 66 through 69, in a way? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting time. Well, it, it, was, it was a time of... Um, it's like all my favorite music in like four <laughs> years, you know? Well, you know, a lot of things came together. First of all, you, you, you had you, you had Dylan going electric. Uh, right. That was a big deal because um, he, he kind of legitimized yeah. serious lyrics in popular music. Right. So suddenly you, you could sing about politics, you could sing about yeah. real issues right. and not just the moon in June. So that, that was a big deal. Yeah. So from 63, 64, whenever that was, uh, onwards, you know, you, know that you, you had sort of folk rock and, and then yeah. you know, the Beatles writing serious lyrics. Uh, and suddenly rock music became this grown-up thing. It wasn't a teenage thing anymore. Mm. Uh, and then you had the, 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 these, these cross-currents kind of, kind of meeting. You had sort of Tim Pan Alley elements uh, meeting R&B. Mm-hmm. You had influence from like, things like indie music you know, coming in. And then you had all, all, all the recording technology um, from people. Uh, you know, the stuff that Les Paul had invented in, in the late 40s. Right. Um, you, you know, the, the, the Beatles were pioneering, you know, you know f- phasing, flanging, mm-hmm. you know, double speed, half speed. Backwards tapes, all, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you had all, all these new sounds, like and all these ideas, all, all suddenly appearing in the same place at the same time. So it was this very, very fertile um, time, and uh, people saw the, the empty fields that, that, that needed plowing, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, there's also the same time of the civil rights movement and the mm. uh, yeah Vietnam people coming together for a cause and it actually making a difference. Making you know? a difference, yeah. And I think that's something that is somehow not in, especially in America right now, where there's... Well, I, the, I mean, you know, I disagree. At the school level, at the college level, I, yeah. I, I think it's absolutely there. That's true. Uh, um, huge numbers of kids to turn out for protests, yeah. which is fantastic. I mean, that, that, that's very... Encouraging. Uh, when, when those people start voting, well, well look out, it's going to be different. Um, the, you know, the, the difference on the other side of, of the pond, um, difference for Fairport, was it wasn't quite so political. Mm. Uh, the, there were political elements, but, but you know, the, the Vietnam War did not mean as much to us, although we yeah. sympathised. Uh, it, it, it wasn't quite so immediate for us. Do you, do you recall a tour in the late 60s that really exemplified sort of that time and, and crystallised that music for you? <laughs> Well, we we did a couple of tours of the states in, uh, in 1970, um, which were uh, interesting, um, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we were we were British, so people. Who were you paired up with? <clears throat> um, well, this is Fairport Convention. Uh, yeah. We're playing on bills with people like Traffic, mm-hmm. Jethro Tull, mm. Savoy Brown. Uh, I can't, can't think of what else. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we opened for like Rick Nelson, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, you know, I, I think because we were British, people would turn out because it was something a little bit different. Right. We'd play a week at the LA Troubadour and, and Led Zeppelin would come and sit in and stuff, you know. So, so yeah, you had all, all these, these, this kind of insane stuff. And, and people would, would invite us to their houses and, and there'd be these big parties or big lunches or whatever, you know, just uh, just incredible stuff. I mean, it was, it was quite exciting um, to be in that in that world. And, when Led Zeppelin sits in at the Troubadour, yeah, it's like, how do you... <laughs> how does that feel? Like, what does it feel like, you know? What does it feel like? Well, um, they were, were friends of ours, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that, like, in, I think in our minds, these are like mythological creatures, right? Mythological creatures, okay. And well, but no. in your yeah, but it's like in your time, they were like they were another band that we knew, they, right? They, 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 were, they were just a band, you know. Yeah. They, they really, um, 
you know, that, that there wasn't anybody particularly ele- elevated for, from that scene. You yeah. know, like Pink Floyd were just just another band. You know. Yeah. So um, you know, we're, we're playing at the Troubadour. They're they're in the audience. You know. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I, th- I think I think I think Planty gets up and sings sings something. Yeah. And then Bonham gets up and sits in on drums, and, and then you know John Williams yeah. gets up, and then you know so, <laughs> so, so suddenly like uh, it, it, it's me and Zeppelin yeah. <laughs> on stage, just kind of bizarre. Um, I got myself a new band. Yeah, so that was fun, and then then there was this whole scene afterwards, and then there's this like three sided drinking contest. It's, yeah. it, it, it's all in my forthcoming book. I, I won't give it all away. When's that come out? Uh, next year. What's it called? It's called Beeswing, and it's uh, it's sixty-seven to seventy-five. Mm. That, that that period. You hear it here first, folks. There's a book coming. <laughs> well, you've and you've worked with some filmmakers before. You know, what was it like working with Werner Herzog on Grizzly Man? Well, um, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I have the highest regard for Werner. Um, I mean, he's quite a character. Yeah, he's a character, but I, I mean, I loved his, his films. You know, yeah. um, just they're extraordinary films. So it was a real honour to work for him. Yeah. And, and, and we did the soundtrack for, for the Grizzly Man film. And um, I think basically, we, we did most of it in two days. Um, and it was mostly improvised. Almost all improvised. Wow. And, uh, and we recorded so much music that, yeah. that we, there was enough left over for the, the, the six-part spin-off TV series. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we certainly really, uh, we, we hit our stride on that one. Yeah. If there was a movie that is your favourite, that you could do the score for, in retrospect, like a movie that's already mid-made that you love, what movie would that be? The, the trouble is, I mean, the, the the great films usually do have have a good score already. Um, I mean, probably my favorite film in the whole world is The Seventh Samurai. Um, mm. um, Kurosawa. Yeah, uh, and, and it, does, it doesn't have that much music in it. it, it you know, um, it ha- has a lot of. Um, you know, Japanese film scores are often kind of derived from uh, Japanese theatre, like, like right. uh, you know, Kibuki and, uh, right. and No Theatre. So, um, yeah, I suppose I could have a go at, at rescoring um, Seven Samurai. That'd be fun. Um, I mean, I would pay to see that. I, I wouldn't, but thank you anyway. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are films with kind of bad scores. The, the, the Princess Bride has a really terrible score. It's, it's a really good film, but it has just an awful score. I wouldn't mind doing that one again. What, tell me about this, uh, the soundtrack you did for Cold, The Cold Blue. Hmm. Yeah, so this is a film, um, uh, the, 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 the producer who's, who's uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Eric Nelson, um, founded the Smithsonian uh, Archives, um, The Leftovers, from uh, William Wyler's 1943 documentary uh, about the Memphis Bell, hmm. uh, the B-17 bomber, the hmm. Memphis Bell. Uh, but, but he, he found another 22 hours of film that, that, that no one had ever looked at. Mm-hmm. So he looked at it and thought, wow, this is amazing. Um, but it was in a terrible state, uh, as the Memphis Bell um, was before it restored. So, so he restored all, all this uh, uh, footage. Um, extraordinary. The difference is just unbelievable. And, of course, it was shot um, uh, visuals only. There's there, there no, no, no soundtrack to it. So everything had to be added, like all the sound effects, of the, you, know, you know, guns firing, but, the, yeah. you know... Um, you know, engines revving on yeah. planes. You know, well, all that stuff had to be a- added afterwards, and and also the the wonderful thing, it's narrated by uh, uh, eight survivors from from the Seventh Air Force. Sorry, Eighth eight Air Force. Because yeah. Um, um, uh, all all in their nineties. Um, uh, just amazing men. Um, so they did the narration over this footage. 
and uh, and I did the the music for it. Um, and and the film's been being very well received. Um, mm. It had a very short theatre distribution uh, yesterday, mm. uh, like a one-day screening mm. um, in many theatres across America, and it's out on HBO next month. Oh wow! Cool. So um, yeah, it was great fun. What was your what was your parents' experience in the war in England? Uh, my father uh, was um, we, he started out the, the war in the in, in the police in London, mm. um, you know. So, so, so he, he was there for the Blitz, mm. all that stuff. Uh, he, he said his first real experience of war was um, the, the, there was a, a direct hit in London on a, on a, on a bomb shelter, mm. and that's like four hundred people were, were, were killed in, in the bomb shelter. So, so his first experience of it was dragging the bodies out from the, the bomb shelter. He then went into the army at a certain point, um, and he was with 21st Army Group, uh, General Montgomery's group, mm-hmm. uh, going up through France in, into um, into Holland, Belgium, mm-hmm. Germany. Um, he, th- he then gets rec- recruited uh, by the the military police. This, this, called, this thing called the SIB, the mm-hmm. um, Special Intelligence Branch, mm. which is basically kind of doing a, a third man. Thing. Um, you know, it, it's like it's like rounding up Nazis, um, mm. uh, contraband, um, you know, murders, mm. you know, all the, all the stuff that happens around war and after after war. So he, he was he was in Antwerp till forty seven till two, two years after the war finished, mm. and, and then he went back into the police. But um, he, he didn't talk about it much. Uh, I, I, he was actually uh, he couldn't talk about it because he was banned by the Official Secrets Act. Oh, which, wow. uh, it was 50 years. I mean, you think he was probably, I mean, he was probably traumatized also, right? Yeah, they all were, but they, they, yeah. they didn't talk about it. I, all my friends' fathers were, were in the war. You know, yeah. um, my best friend's dad was in a, um, was it was in a, um, a camp, you know, a German um, prison camp for three years. Um, but he didn't really talk about it. I know there's all these, these guys, you know, my grandparents, you know, you're, Sort of losing those stories as they they're they're mostly gone. A lot of those folks now, yeah, you know, yeah, they are gone. And well, as I say, I mean the the narrators um, for the film were yeah. all in the nineties. Did you ever write a song about your dad? Well, I wrote a song about my father's generation. I, I've written songs about my father, um, mm. but they're a bit more cryptic. Um, I, I wrote a song called uh, "Albolis in Heaven," which is about uh, that generation, uh, uh, the World War Two generation, Be, because I wanted to understand. What that meant, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I want to understand what 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 the, you know what that did to my parents, mm. uh, and uh, uh, you know what 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 they became, and, and as a result, what I became. Mm. And I wrote something about World War One, mm. uh, about my grandfather's generation, to understand them and mm. how, how that that fed into my parents, you know, into me. Just just to understand who 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 I am myself. Yeah, because like so much of our you know, older generations are—they're shaped completely by these traumatic yeah. events that, you know, we haven't experienced anything like that. You know, not really. No, um, I suppose uh, you know um, the, the the world wars were were catastrophic um, and deeply traumatizing for many many people. You know, in the in the fifties and sixties, we grew up with, with the bomb. You know, yeah. um, the, the the hydrogen bomb. Um, right. And we never knew if we were going to survive. Um, you know, you know, what's the point of planning for the future? That, that right. kind of thing. 
you know, these days kids say, well, you know, you know, you know climate change. Um, right. You know, the, the planet isn't going to last much longer. You know, so, so what's the point of planning for? You know, for, I think for every generation there are challenges. Mm. Sometimes it's just more painful than other times. Um, you know, people in Europe thought that the, the, the Black Death was, was the end of the world. Mm. Almost uh, probably I mean, was for humanity, yeah. It was, a, it was a third of the population of Europe was wiped out. So, so um, uh, <laughs> yeah. you never know, you never know. I suppose the end of the world is the end of your own life. That's the basic uh, premise. If you could see one place in the world right now, what would it be that you have never been? Never been. Um... I'd like to go to Ecuador, mm. just because I like birds, you know, I'm a kind of bird watcher, so, so um, that's high on my list of places that have uh, extraordinary um, birds, and, mm. uh, and I haven't seen lots of them, so that would be a wonderful place to go. Why haven't you gone? Uh, I've been planning for years, so I just can't quite find the window to get down there. But uh, one I know, day. I've been trying to figure out a way to get to Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu, yeah. Um, and it's like, it's just a little bit too expensive. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. For us uh, traveling troubadours, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you have to get a gig there. have to get booked there. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. All right. If you could book the Richard Thompson Festival, A, where would it be and the first five people you would book, dead or alive? Okay, dead or alive. That's, that's interesting. Well, I, I think I'd hold it uh, in, in Kew Gardens in London, um, okay. where they, they do have occasional concerts. So this isn't totally. Um, it's possible. Pissing in the wind, as we say. Yeah. Um, it's possible. Yeah, um, dead or alive. Uh, I think uh, the, the Quintet de Hot Club de France with, with Django mm. Reinhardt. That'd be a good one. Um, Louis Armstrong Hot Five. Mm. Perhaps um, you know Mozart with a chamber orchestra. Mozart conducting a chamber orchestra. <laughs> well, it's hard to uh, hard to have the the premiere of the Rite of Spring, so I can't really do that. Um, uh, let me see. I mean, you can do anything in this Fly festival. The well, you know, it'd be nice to to, to go to, to see like, like you know like, like an early rock and roll show, you know, mm. with, with, with like Buddy Holly or Gene Vincent or something. Mm. You know, that that'd be very cool. Right before the plane crash. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, is that five? That's about five. What was it like uh, working with Jeff Tweedy? I know he he produced your. Uh, yeah, yeah, great, Re- really good. Um, yeah, he's terrific. I, I mean, I, I love Jeff. I, I love what he does. Um, How did he find you? Was he, was he grew up listening to you? Poor guy. I hope not. <laughs> uh, we've done shows together. Okay. We, we, we've done co-bills with with Wilco. Hmm. Um, I, I just thought he'd be a good person. I, you know, I really liked what he did on the on, on the uh, the Mavis Yeah, that's records. one of my favorite records. The last yeah. ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it one true vine? I think. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. But, so, so I thought, well, if, if he can do that with 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 with, with Mavis, kind of, kind of, you know, which is basically putting her at the center of her her own record, mm. that then perhaps that, that would work for me as well. What uh, was his What was his process? Uh, process are uh, fairly laid back. Um, you know, he was very good um, with things that a lot of producers might not notice um you know st- song structure things mm. you, you know like uh, take out a bass drum beat you know mm. uh, um you know cut a verse there you know that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing just kind of shaping mm-hmm. the actual song and the actual groove of the song um but basically you just let us play for the most part you know we didn't do a lot of takes of anything do you get protective of songs that you think are fully formed and then a producer would like to reshape them I do, and you have to swallow very hard sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes there's a fight, you know. Sometimes yeah. you, you say, well, I, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Yeah. So I, I'm not get, giving up on that. And then yeah. you go home and you, and you wake up the next day and you think, damn, he was right. 
Sometimes people from the outside can see better than you can. Yeah. Songs are strange. I mean, these little three-minute things that, that we take for granted, uh, sometimes they can be very, uh, very twisty and almost kind of hit you at a subconscious level. You know? yeah. I think sometimes they're created at a subconscious level. Uh, they can hit you uh, mm-hmm. at the same level. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, people who songwrite in teams, it's a big thing in Nashville where, where you, you, know, you, you, know, you know, Tuesday you're with this person, yeah, yeah. Wednesday afternoon you're with this person. Have you done that? No. Um, it sounds terrible to me. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you might lose something. I think, I think you, you gain something in, in having a really well-structured song sometimes. Yeah. Uh, it's probably going to be a hit, as, as opposed to the kind of songs I write, which are <laughs> a bit more obscure. But, but, but I love the fact that I don't understand um, my songs sometimes, and I don't know where they come from. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I might start out with an intention. Uh, and by the second verse, the intention's already gone. And, yeah. and the song is, is dragging me somewhere else. But I, but I love that, because I think, it is, as you say, it's a more poetic process. And, uh, you know, poetry does the same thing. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's expressing what can't be expressed in, in, in this other way that, that kind of um, juxtaposes language, uh, as opposed to being linear. You know, it kind of throws things against each other to create something that you can't say. If you could go back in time and make any song of yours an actual number one hit, <laughs> what song would that be? Um... Well, probably the closest I came was probably a song called "I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight," which was it was top forty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's top forty in the UK. Uh, but but it came out at Christmas, and uh, that song's come up on a bunch of like playlists. Well, like, it does, you know, you know which, it, which is nice. But but uh, if an actual hit would have been useful at the time. Yeah, you know, we could have actually used that uh, to, to uh, give ourselves um, a step further up the ladder. Yeah. You know? But uh, yeah, we, we were competing with you know Slade and and. Uh, yeah. You know the sweet and all, all these all these Christmas yeah. singles at the time, so, so it's kind of uh, got lost. Yeah, well, there's there's this pressure I think on young songwriters, even if they may be in, in this more folk and Americana scene that isn't sort of engineered to create these pop hits. Hmm. But everyone wants to be in a place that's a little bit better than where they are. I think everybody does. You know, yeah. that's and very the, natural. Thing. And there's this sort of helpless feeling of well, we're never going to be uh, on mainstream radio or we're never going to be accepted in sort of mainstream culture because yeah, but, but we it, are not a part of this sort of bigger world. We're in this sort of folk Americana world, which I feel like I don't know why they have to be so separate, you know? Well, hopefully somewhere there's an overlap, you know, so, so somewhere it feeds into, into a bigger... Yeah scene or something but um, it, it can make you or break you as well yeah. you, you know the, so many people have, have had like one hit record yeah uh, and you, you know uh, um, somehow it changes their relationship with, with their audience yeah uh, and, and, uh, and that, that's the end of them really and, that, and that's all they want is this one yeah. song yeah. but I mean speaking of a band that l- like Wilco mm-hmm. um, I don't think Wilco had any hits I always use them as the model of like what yeah. so, so my ideal go. situation would be yeah, and I, I think maybe that isn't necessary. You know, it's somehow you can also reach people through word of mouth, and mm. uh, you know, you, you know, if, if you take your trousers off on on, on YouTube, you know, that that will <laughs> get you a few fans. Um, yeah, I hate I, I, I hate the fact that um, sometimes you have to do stunts to get an audience. That yeah. seems kind of ridiculous. So, um, but, have you ever but, have you ever had to do something like that? I've never really truly sold my soul to the devil, but. Um, I've, I've, I've done I've done ridiculous promotional things, 
just uh, you know like doing you know 65 interviews in a day that kind of thing <laughs> I mean literally 65 interviews wow. in a day you know singing at, at uh, you know record conventions um, yeah where, where, where no one gives a shit about you at all yeah you know people are just not interested they're, they're, they're drinking they're, they're carousing with their friends yeah you know you, you go on and, and it's, it's embarrassing nothing you know yeah but you know the record company says, "Oh, this is going to be great. You know they're going to love you." Yeah. So uh, yeah. Well, there is something uniquely humiliating for me about being background music now, and I wish that I didn't feel that way because there's obviously an ego thing, right? Yeah. Well, you're allowed an ego. So it's like we, you know, so we get hired every now and again to do like a corporate event mm-hmm. or a uh, an event that is sort of on. And we're in LA, so it's like on the lot at some studio mm-hmm. right and someone in the studio or someone really wanted yep. Dust Bowl Revival yep. which is you know it's like feels nice to be wanted yeah. and they pay you actually pretty well yep. and it's celebrities and it's people who you really would love to at least look towards the stage mm-hmm. and not a single person watches not a single person claps mm-hmm. and it's like <clears throat> there's something uniquely uh it just it makes you so sort of mad as an artist, I know, yeah, yeah. but also you're like, okay, well, I need to make a living, so I don't feel ter- that terrible. But I'm also like, haven't I gotten to the point where people can at least clap? You know? No, no. Well, yeah, you, you never do. Somehow, I don't know. <laughs> you know those those corporate things, and and uh, you know, they're actually worse than playing at a wedding, uh, which yeah. is pretty bad. Um, I think you just say, okay, well. Um, you know the, the fees double. Yeah. If you still want me, okay, fine. Yeah. Know. Or sometimes I, I say the fees treble. Like, yeah. like for a wedding, I, yeah. I, you want me to sing at your wedding? Treble. A Richard Thompson wedding band that would be. Uh, I've done it solo uh, weddings. So it, it's it's still soul destroying. That's, That's a it. unique fan. Yeah, but but still, that, that there's that one one fan at the yeah. wedding who actually likes you, and everyone <laughs> else ignores you. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know, it, it's like being a busker. You get ignored. Yeah. Um, I think it's something you get used to, and you say, "Okay, um, you know, I'm on for an hour. I should do exactly an hour. Yeah. I should get off, and then I shall move on to yeah. something more meaningful in my life." But I'm always, I'm always curious as someone who's done this for decades now, mm-hmm. right? There's something about you that can get over any sort of indignity of certain audiences and bad sound and bad food and the travel. And there's something about that moment of perfect glory every now and again that makes it worth it. You yeah, know? Absolutely right. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Um, I, I think the greatest reward for me is uh, is playing in front of an audience. You know, yeah. it, it's feeling that the, the audience gets what you do, that they appreciate yeah. what you do, uh, and that there's some kind of communication. I mean, that, that that's the real payoff yeah. for me. Um, and everything else is secondary to that. Well, I, I love writing as well. You know. The, you know the, the, the you know the the, the Irish harper, harpist you know in you know the 1800s going, going from yeah. castle to castle you know in the tradesman's entrance you know you you just the entertainment you know you, you like you like the staff you know uh, you know amuse me you know amuse me for yeah. you know all right the last thing before you have to go I want to ask you if you were in charge of the cylinder that's going into space mm-hmm. okay the five songs that aliens from another planet would get to hear where they could get to know what the human race is all about. <laughs> what would those be? Well, what do, you, what, what do they usually stick in? They, they stick in Beethoven's Ninth, don't they? 
I'm saying, what would you put in? Yeah, I, I, I'd put Beethoven's Ninth in right. as well, I, I, as, a, as a kind of a, you know, one of the pinnacles of, of yeah. uh, human creativity. That's a good one, you know. Um, musically, whew. well, that's tricky because you should really be representing, you know, cultures of the world. Right. So you have to put it's, it's, you know, maybe something Chinese, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to say yeah. what that might be. Um, you know, did put something African, you put something African in there. I think you have to re- represent the world. Something from each continent. Yeah, unless this is specifically, you know, like a, you know, a, a northern hemisphere. Um, uh, what space what, what represents North America? It's North America. Mm, mm, tricky. I don't know. Maybe, um, yeah, Duke Ellington or something. Duke Ellington, it is. Yeah, Solitude by Duke Ellington. That's pretty good. I'm so glad we got to talk. And, uh, Thank you. Thanks so much. Got to get him dancing tonight. It's 9 o'clock. It's going to be cold. Okay. <laughs> Let's get me dancing too. Cause What's it's the song cold. that you're opening with tonight? Uh, we're going to open with a song called uh, The Bones of Gilead. It's a happy sing-along song. Yeah, why not? Yeah. You, 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 can, you, you can dance to it and feel depressed at the same time. <laughs> that's, that's the perfect Richard Thompson song <laughs> to kick it off. I think so. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank All you. Right, man. Thanks a lot. Due to some time and sound constraints, and because Richard is in full rock and roll mode right now, uh, he wanted us to play one of his songs from his records. So here is my favorite, The Rattle Within, from 13 Rivers off New West Records. Let it rip, Richard. Yeah. 
There you have it, Mr. Richard Thompson, everybody. Or should I say, Sir Richard Thompson. I don't think he's a knight, but he is definitely higher up than most of us. You can go to richardthompson-music.com for his music and his tour dates. Uh, He's going to be playing some unique solo dates coming up uh, in Lenox, Massachusetts, June 21st, June 23rd in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is actually where my group Dust Bowl Revival is playing tonight. So uh, Ridgefield, Connecticut, they know what's going on, folks. Uh, And then he's playing in uh, New York City at City Winery July 1st. And then he will be playing uh, LeVon Helm Studios in Woodstock July 13th. That will be a lot of fun. If you go over to thebluegrasssituation.com, you will find that Richard was the Artist of the Month for October of 2018. That's when his wonderful record, 13 Rivers, dropped. And uh, Stephen Dusner wrote a great uh, article going into each of the 13 songs and how, you know, it really excavated a difficult part of Richard's life. And um, if you want to know about Richard, it's an amazing way to get into his music. If you can hear the birds chirping cheerfully outside the window right now, or the trucks rattling the walls as they go by, it's because I'm on the road right now with my gang Dust Bowl Revival. Uh, We'll be playing Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Burlington, Vermont, and Buffalo, New York, and Greenfield, Mass., and uh, going over to Hamilton, Ohio, and Louisville, Kentucky. All sorts of fun shows coming up. And uh, there's some free festivals and concert series we're playing in July. Uh, July 6th at the Levitt Pavilion in Denver, July 8th at the Art Town Music Series in Reno, Nevada, and July 13th at the Rolling River Music Fest outside Minneapolis. So that'll be a lot of fun. Come and see us. As always, if you have cool ideas about artists that I haven't heard of that you think should be on this show, hit me up on Instagram. That's Show on the Road Podcast. Or you could be a true champion and write us a review on iTunes. And then you could say, hey, my band's pretty dope. Why don't you talk to me? And I might. You never know. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.